1 Kings chapter 11. I love studying the Old Testament accounts. Um, and some people love the Old Testament, some people don't have much use for it. But I love the Old Testament because it really gives us a clear understanding of cause and effect. Uh, throughout the accounts, especially as you look at Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, uh, you look at Esther, you look uh, throughout not so much the prophets, but, but more in terms of the narrative from Genesis up until uh, Psalms, uh, you see the cause and effect of situations where people made decisions, uh, people did things like we saw last week, uh, that played out, especially things that have spiritual significance. And you can see the decisions that they make and then what happened. Now, last week we studied two kings uh, who came from very similar situations but followed very different paths because of where their heart was and because of the spiritual uh, feelings, the spiritual uh, inclinations of their heart and then the decisions they made out of that. Uh, we saw that they went on very divergent paths uh, and, and had different results. Well, this morning we're going to look at the king who preceded them, Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam was the first king of Israel uh, after the nation divided. We know that there was Saul, who was not God's choice. He was the people's choice. He strayed from the Lord. Then God put David, who was the man he really wanted, uh, in charge of the nation. The nation flourished. David was a righteous man. And then David's son Solomon became king. Uh, he had a great start. God allowed him to build the temple. But Solomon in his later days strayed from the Lord, uh, had a thousand women who uh, he allowed uh, to, to twist his heart, to follow false gods. And after that, the kingdom divided. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took uh, the lower two tribes, the southern two tribes, Judah, and Jeroboam became king of the northern two tribes. Now, that's very significant uh, because Jerusalem was in Judah, and that's going to be a detail I want you to remember, um, because it, it has an impact on the decisions that Jeremiah, Jeroboam makes, and it causes him to, to make a very significant mistake. A mistake's probably not a hard enough word there, but he makes a very significant decision uh, that affects the rest of his life and affects the nation. We'll look at that in a minute. But one truth I, I really want us to get at the start of our study this morning, is that with every king that Israel and Judah had, the Lord wanted to help them. The Lord wanted to bless them. He wanted to put them in a situation where they could thrive. And He promised that He would help them, uh, but there were certain conditions. They had to love the Lord. And they had to lead the nation away from idols, because that was Israel's inclination all the way back to the desert in Sinai. They had to abandon idols. They had to not follow what the nations around them were doing in terms of worship. And they had to follow the Lord. And it was the king's responsibility to lead that charge. So God said to every king, I'll bless you. I'll help you. I'll put my hand on your kingdom. But you have to love the Lord personally, and you have to lead the nation to love the Lord and to serve the Lord. Now, that wasn't obscure in any way. That wasn't a, a complicated condition. He starts out with Saul. Saul, the Bible says, had every opportunity to thrive as much as David did, but Saul squandered that. So God reinforced the condition with 
David and then with Solomon. He did it publicly at the dedication of the temple. He said, if you follow me, I'll bless you. If you stray and follow false gods, I will not bless you. Then with almost every king, in fact, maybe every king, he emphasizes it again through the prophets. He tells them the condition. And then you add to that the fact that the law told them this, that history told them this. They could go all the way back through the national history, and, and Israel had a great sense of its history, probably more than we do. Um, so they could look back at what had happened, the cause and effect of decisions that had been made, and then they could look at each king that had come before them. And they could see that when you didn't follow the Lord, uh, trouble followed, God didn't bless it. When you did follow the Lord, God blessed it. Now we've got to get that truth right at the outset this morning because every time we study the Word, God tells us this is what's best for you. This is what's best for your faith. He doesn't hide it. The Lord is never deceptive. He's never tricky. He's never uh, obscure in terms of what he wants us to know. In fact, when you study the Bible, it's very clear. Some of you uh, maybe aren't as comfortable with that. Maybe you didn't grow up studying the Word because of your religious tradition. But, but when we get to the Word, the Word speaks to us. And if we can't get that, then we need to learn how to study the Bible better, or we need to ask, and we need to ask the Lord, Lord, help me, because I'm reading this, I don't quite get it, I need your Holy Spirit to, to make it clear to me. And when we pray that, God gives that to us. So we have an amazing resource in our hands. This, this, this book that we hold is given to us by our loving, gracious God who wants to tell us exactly what we need to know and says, here's truth that you need to apply to, our, to your life. And, and this passage, we're going to look at kind of sections of, verse, of chapters 11 to 14. This passage tells us that. Now, we first see Jeroboam, if you're in 1 Kings 11, we first see him in this chapter. And the Spirit details kind of Solomon's fast fall and how he let his heart wander and how he uh, was worshiping false God. So in response to that, the Lord surrounds him with opposing nations and they kind of create turmoil for Solomon. So the end of Solomon's reign as king is kind of in strife and there are nations that are coming against him and nothing's really going well. Now his son, Rehoboam, um, kind of grabs the reins, but that doesn't go very well, and we're going to see what happens. There's somebody that's in Solomon's household, and his name is Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, Solomon looks at him and says, he's got some leadership abilities. I, I think I can trust him, so he promotes him. So Jeroboam kind of becomes elevated in the house of Solomon, and he starts to develop his potential. And one day, he's traveling outside of Jerusalem on the king's business, and as he's going outside of Jerusalem, he runs into a prophet. The prophet's name is Ahijah. And Ahijah has a very unique and specific message for Jeroboam. Let's pick it up. Chapter 11, starting in verse 29. Came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shinonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. Now drop down to verse 35. 
but I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son I'll give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I've chosen for myself to put my name. I will take you, and you will reign over whatever you desire, and you will be king over Israel. Then it will be, here's the condition, look at verse 38, then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what's right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then, it's an if-then, if you will listen, then I will be with you and will build an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Now, the last two verses we read, verses 37 and 38, are the absolute key to Jeroboam's life. Everything that happens from 1 Kings eleven thirty-eight 38 on is dependent on what Jeremiah, uh, Jeroboam excuse me, does with these two verses. We may not have that kind of clarity in our own lives of this, this is what you have to do, this is the result, but we do have clarity from Scripture of what God expects for us. Now, I'd love for a prophet to walk up to me tomorrow and say, all right, Rhodes, here it is. This, 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 and this. If you do this, God will do this. If you don't do this, God will do this. All of us would desire that kind of uh, personal, kind of eyewitness, uh, tangible clarity from the Lord. But we do have that clarity. We may not have a prophet walk up to us and say, this is what's going to happen. But we are told exactly in Scripture what God is going to do and what God expects from us. Jesus says in John 15, if you'll obey my commandments, you will remain in my love and my joy will be in you. And I'll no longer call you servants, I'll call you friends. James 1 promises that if we continue in and obey the perfect law that gives freedom, we will be blessed in all that we do. Now, we don't have a hijah, but we have something better than a hijah. We have the Word of God, 66 books that the Spirit of God gives us. And he tells us very explicitly there is a cause and effect in play. If you trust the Lord, if you love the Lord, if you obey the Lord, if you serve the Lord, he will bless you beyond measure. But if you doubt him, if you love other things more, if you disobey the word, if you live for yourself, he not only can't, but he won't bless you. Now Jeroboam gets this direct message from the Lord, and this direct message, if you look back at it in verses 37-38, it has two parts that will be very, very familiar to us. In verse 37, we see God's grace. God's grace is given to Jeroboam in this unconditional promise I'm going to give you something you don't deserve. I'm going to give you something you can't earn simply because I'm loving and simply because I choose you to have it. Now, we've heard that before, right? We've heard that in what God does through Jesus Christ. That God gives us something we don't deserve, salvation and forgiveness. That He does it simply because He loves us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to merit it. God simply chooses to do it because He chooses to do it. 
So we have a picture here in, in 1 Kings, which is not where you'd expect it. We have a picture of what God's going to do through the cross. So and then in verse 38, he says, Now, because of this truth, because of what I'm telling you in verse 37, now there's a responsibility you have. And where my grace is unconditional, now my, your responsibility is conditional. So look at what he tells him in verse 38. He says, Listen to all my commandments... Walk in my ways, observe and obey my commandments, and then, if you do that, it's an if-then, anytime you see if-then, it's conditional, then I will give you an enduring kingdom just like David's. Now that's an amazing statement, because when we think about King David, what do we think about? We think about God's blessing, we think about a man after God's heart, we think about his desire to build the temple, we think about the Psalms, we think about how the Lord blessed him, he had the two sins with Bathsheba and with the census, but, but overall, when you look at King David, he's the example. He's, he's the uh, 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 precursor of Christ. We see a lot of things that God does through him that are miraculous. So everything when you look back at David is, is powerful and wonderful and the one you want to follow. Well, God says to Jeroboam, you can have a kingdom just like his. You can be just like his, and, and I will bless you in the same way. It will be equal to the one who's the most blessed, the one who is eternally blessed by me. I'll give you control of the nation. That nation will endure. Your kingdom will endure. And I'll have my hand of favor on you. In other words, Jeroboam, listen to me. Ahijah's telling you, you're set for life. If. If. You do what I'm calling you to do. I'll bless you. I'll give you every advantage. I'll put my hand on your life. I'll put my hand on your kingdom. You will thrive. People will mention you in the same name as they do my servant David. And you remember how much David's revered and how much David's respected. So Jeroboam, listen to me. You can have the exact same thing if you'll obey me. Now, turn over to chapter 14. We're going to get to what's in between in a moment. But let's see what happens next. Jeroboam is king over Israel, just as God had promised to him in the field. But there's a problem. Two problems, actually. First problem is his heart's far from the Lord. And the second problem is that he has a son who's very sick. And he doesn't know what to do. And as he and his wife are watching his son go downhill, he's king. He has all the power and authority of anybody in the nation, but there's nothing he can do. There's nothing worse than seeing your kids sick, right? Where, where you feel just completely powerless. So he watches his son getting progressively worse. And he's talking to his wife and saying, I don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, a bright idea comes into his mind. And he says, wait a second. Remember that prophet that, that I met that one day when I was working for Solomon before I came king? What was his name again? Oh, um, uh, uh, oh Ahijah. Ahijah, that's right. Let's find him. Because he seemed to have a connection to God, so maybe he'll know what to do. Now the problem is, Jeremiah's not living for the Lord. So as he starts to think about going to Ahijah and saying, listen, can you help me? You're a man of God. My son's sick. Uh, God said he'd help me and bless me. Uh, I, I'm forgetting the conditions, but God said he'd help me and bless me. So, so maybe, Ahijah, you can come along and, and you can minister to my son and, and say something and he'll get better. 
So Jeroboam starts to get nervous about that because he knows that he doesn't have any credit. He doesn't have any cloud at this point to go and say, look, I've been faithful to God, and I've been walking worthy of the Lord, and God's blessed me. He knows that his heart's not right. So he gets the big idea. He gets the big idea to send his wife. But not just to send his wife. It says in the first part of chapter 14, you can just glance at it, that he sends his wife in disguise. And then he sends her with some cakes and honey because he figures that a pretty stranger offering bribes will fool the man of God. So Jeroboam's wife gets in disguise and goes. What Jeroboam doesn't know at this point is that Ahijah is blind. So the disguise isn't going to work very well. But even more than that, Ahijah's walking with the Lord. And any time you walk with the Lord, God gives you a sensitivity to Him. And God gives you a spiritual uh, perception that surpasses any cleverness. So while Jeroboam is scheming and trying to figure out how to trick the man of God, he doesn't realize that the man of God already knows what's up. Because the Lord's come to Ahijah and said, listen, I, I want to tell you what's going to happen today as Ahijah's spending time with the Lord. He says, today, uh, somebody's going to visit you. You're not going to know who they are because you're blind, but I'm going to tell you in advance. It's the wife of Jeroboam, and she's coming in disguise. And let me tell you what she's going to ask you, and let me tell you what you're going to say. So Ahijah's already ready. And, and Mrs. Jeroboam comes up to the door, and, and even before she gets to the door, he hears her footsteps, and he calls out, Hey, it's Jeroboam's wife. Come on in. Uh, by the way, why are you in disguise? And you can feel her blood run out of her face. And then he says, By the way, I knew you were coming, and God's given me a message for you, and you're not going to like it. In fact, you're not going to like it one bit. Because of what your husband is doing. Now, this is a very important spiritual principle that I want to just take one minute to establish. And I want to encourage you to write it down because it's, it's something we know, but it's something we have to be reminded of. It is both a powerful privilege and a very wise warning. The Lord will always give clarity to us about His leading when we stay in close fellowship with Him. The Lord will always give us clarity about His leading when we stay in close fellowship with Him. He is faithful. He promises this in Scripture. We know this is true from the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is truth. God is faithful to give us spiritual insight and to give us discernment and to give us clarity at any time, even when it doesn't necessarily seem logical to us, but He will only do that when we're walking with Him and we're abiding in His presence and we're yielded to the Spirit. God will be faithful. God will do this. He will give clarity. Uh, he will provide. He will lead. He will show us when we walk with Him and when we seek Him. When we don't do that, conversely, even if we're saved, even if we can say, well, I got saved this and this state, and I go to church and I serve the Lord. But, but if we're not walking with Him and we're not seeking Him, then we're going to find that we don't have clarity. 
we're going to find that our spiritual discernment is muddled and we even may be a little confused or frustrated that, that heaven seems a little bit silent. And then we'll struggle as we try to, try to make decisions and we'll say, well, why, why can't I discern what the Holy Spirit's doing? Well, there's a cause and effect here that is directly related to how we're walking with the Lord because Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you. And where God is, where Jesus is, where the Holy Spirit is, there's no confusion and there's no uncertainty. There's only confidence in Him and contentment as we wait on Him and seek Him and walk according to His leading. Ahijah knew that, Jeroboam didn't. So Ahijah's wife, excuse me, Jeroboam's wife now, if you look back at chapter 14, we're going to read in a second, Jeroboam's wife is stuck in an awkward situation. She's just the messenger at this point. She's all dolled up. She's got the cakes and honey in her hand. She expected that she's going to come in, somehow fool Ahijah, somehow get him to come to the palace and help, and that Ahijah will go, oh yeah, Jeroboam, we haven't talked in a while. I'm so glad to see you. I'm glad you called me. That's not the message she's going to get. So Ahijah says, all right, we got a problem, and it's not going to end well, but you think it's already bad, it's going to get much worse. In fact, far worse than you could have imagined. Look at verse 7 of chapter 14. Go, say to Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. You also have done more evil than all who were before you. And you've gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I'm bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it's all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, look at what he tells her next. Verse 12, now you arise, go to your house. And when your feet enter the city, the child will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him, for he alone of Jeroboam's family will, fi- will come to the grave because he, excuse me, in him something good was found to the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will rise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the house of Jeroboam this day and from now on. Yikes. The Lord... Reminds Jeroboam, oh, by the way, I was the one who raised you up as a leader. I actually took the kingdom from the house of David because Solomon and Rehoboam sinned against me. So I raised you up. And I said, if you're like David, if you follow me, I'll bless you. But you haven't been like David at all. In fact, you've been the absolute opposite. You have sinned against me. You have done more evil than all the other kings that have come before you. You have many gods. And here's the really scary phrase. I forget what verse it's in. It's in verse uh, 9. The really scary phrase is, you've tossed me behind your back. Careless indifference. Putting a priority on something other than the Lord. Not seeking the Lord. Not trusting the Lord. Not walking with the Lord. He says, 
All you've done is you've created false gods. You've thrown me behind your back. You've disregarded me. You've done nothing with me. And you know what? Judgment's coming because I'm not going to be mocked. I'm not going to be mocked. What a sobering prospect for our own nation. We've mocked the Lord. We've disregarded the Lord. The Lord increasingly every day is being thrown behind our back. And God says, I'm not going to put up with that for long. And he says to Jeroboam's wife, I'm going to discipline the nation because of Jeroboam. And not only is the kingdom done instead of being eternal like it could have been, but Ahijah tells Mrs. Jeroboam, when you go back home, the moment you step foot in the city, your son's going to die. You won't even be able to run quickly to the house and see him to say goodbye before he takes his last breath. I'm not going to allow that. This is how much God hates sin. He says, the moment you step foot, the moment you cross the city limits, your son's dead. Can you imagine that walk back? Can you imagine how slowly she must have walked? Trying to figure out a way. Trying to figure out, what do I do? How can I avoid this? Can I go around the city? Can, can, I, can I somehow send a messenger to send my boy out to the city limits so I can see him? Because the moment I step over the line, he's going to die. She can't Skype him. She can't uh, uh, FaceTime him. She can't do anything. She's completely helpless. And here's the big tragedy. He's the only one in the family that showed any spiritual inclination toward God. God says, I'm going to raise up a new king. And I'm going to punish Israel because of you. Again, cause and effect. Our actions, our decisions can affect others who are close by. Now, you say, all right, well, that's kind of harsh. What, what happened here between the first visit with Ahijah out in the field where everything seemed wonderful and there was blessing coming and God says, I'll help you and I'll give you an eternal kingdom if you follow me. What happens between the first meeting and the second meeting, which now is full of judgment and despair and unhappiness and a harsh indictment of Jeroboam and a statement that the kingdom is going to be changed? Well, turn back two chapters to chapter 12 because this is where everything seems to happen. In the first part of the chapter, I'll try to do this quickly, Israel defy, divides into two nations. Rehoboam was going to be king over all of it, but he was very harsh, unnecessarily harsh with the people. So they rebel, and they send Jeroboam and say, can you help us appeal to Rehoboam? Rehoboam says, forget it. So Jeroboam goes and becomes king of Israel. Rehoboam grabs the two lower tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, and in Judah and Benjamin was the city of Jerusalem. Remember, we said we need to remember that fact because it's important. Well, Jeroboam finally becomes king of Israel one chapter after God told him. And he's on his throne and he's looking around at his kingdom and he says, you know what? I'm feeling a little squirrely about this. Because the temple's in Jerusalem... And the people have to go to the temple to worship God. So, so weekly, they're going to be making the trip down to Judah, which I don't control. 
and they're going to be making their regular sacrifices at the temple. And then yearly, throughout the year, there are festivals where they're going to go to Jerusalem. And every time they go to Jerusalem, something might happen in their psyche where they get more and more comfortable going somewhere else and, they, and their hearts kind of turn away from me. And maybe when they get down to Jerusalem... They're going to say, you know what, we like it better here, and, and we want to follow Rehoboam, even though he's been harsh to them, and, and you know what, i, I got to do something about that. Now remember, God's kept his word. God has put Jeroboam on the throne. He is the king of Israel. But at this point, and this is where it gets very important, at this point he begins to overthink his situation. And he begins to evaluate his strategic position. And he looks at the fact that the temple's in Jerusalem, which God told him it would be, which God said, I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to give that tribe, that part of the nation, to David's descendants because I've said to David, I will always have a throne there for you. You'll always be a light in Jerusalem. So God tells him up front, this is what's going to happen. But God also said to him, I'll help you. But Jeroboam starts to get very anxious. I don't know if he's worried about perception that, that the temple's there, which makes his nation weaker, or maybe he's worried the people won't stay loyal. Maybe he's insecure. Maybe he's power hungry. Maybe he's worried about the loss of tourism. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Whatever the case, he makes an absolutely horrible decision. Look at verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifice in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they'll kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted with his advisors and made two golden calves and said to them, it's too much for you to go all the way to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Sound familiar? In the midst of his panic, Jeremiah, Jeroboam makes a horrible decision. Look at the text again. It says that he said in his heart, if you've got a new uh, uh, international version, it says Jeroboam thought to himself. In other words, he starts to strategize and seek an alternative plan instead of trusting in the Lord. And notice how he assumes the worst. We always assume the worst when we're not walking with the Lord. Oh no, what am I going to do? They're going to go down there and they're going to like it. Then they're going to come back and they're going to kill me. And then they're all going to go back to Rehoboam. And, and I'm not going to be king anymore. And, and, and their hearts are going to be turned. Now there's no confirmation from the Lord. God hasn't told him anything about this. Jeroboam doesn't take time to seek the Lord or even ask of the Lord. How many know it's so important never to get ahead of the Lord? To never start to live in fear and to panic. Lack of faith in God's provision causes us to make very poor decisions. We start to panic about what's uncertain. And then we start to worry that we're going to miss out on something that we should have instead of just waiting patiently on the Lord. And there's this fear of the unknown. And then we start to listen to people. And he goes to his advisors. One of his advisors should have said, wait a second, Jeroboam, stop. Do a timeout here. 
wasn't there a prophet that you just talked to that said God will establish your kingdom as long as you follow him? You know what? Instead of us panicking and trying to grab Jerusalem back, maybe we just need to trust the Lord. Where was the person in his life that said that? Jeroboam panics. And in verse 26, look at it. We're going to draw a conclusion here. Jeroboam acts in his own wisdom. That's an oxymoron, by the way. He acts in his own wisdom and he overrides the Lord instead of remembering God's promises and being faithful to trust. And look at what he does. He starts his own religion. He appoints anybody who wants to be a priest to be a priest. doesn't matter if you're a Levite. We're not going to go by those old rules anymore. You want a title? We'll give you a title. You got money? Give us a little payola. We'll make you a priest. And then he establishes his own festival. He changes the date of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was significant because it was what Israel celebrated in the wilderness commemorating the deliverance from Egypt. So he says, you know what? Feast of Tabernacles isn't going to be on the ninth, uh, 15th day of the 8th month. We're going to put it on the 15th day of the ninth month. In other words, we're going to remove all traces of what God's done in the past. And we're going to set up our own festival because we're more wise than God. But, but that's not even the worst thing. The worst thing isn't that he sets up his own religion. The worst thing is not that he sets up his own festival. Look at what he does. The worst thing he does is make not one, but two golden calves. He hasn't learned anything from Israel wandering in the wilderness when they defied the first commandment to have no other gods before God, when they defied the second commandment to make no graven images and certainly not to worship them. And they, remember in the wilderness, gave the calf credit after they took the rings and their necklaces and the jewelry and they watched Aaron melt it down and form this calf even as the thundering lightnings up on Sinai and they're hearing the voice of God. Even as all that's happening, they form this golden calf, and then they bow down to it and say, this thing we just created, that's what got us out of Egypt. And you notice that Jeroboam says the exact same thing. You know what? These golden calves are what brought us out of Egypt. See, he has the dangerous thought that he knows better than the Lord. And instead of encouraging worship at the true temple and saying, you know what? Go to Jerusalem. We're going to trust that as long as you're worshiping God, God's his hand on us. He puts two golden calves out. One is in Dan at the very northern part of the nation. So the people up by Galilee and Nazareth, they don't have to travel all the way down to Jerusalem. They can just go to what's convenient. And then he puts one in Bethel, which was the second Jerusalem where, where God met with his people. And he says, let's put one there. What an offense to God. See, making what's convenient became more important than following the Lord. Lack of faith always leads to bad decisions. Rushing the Lord, getting ahead of the Lord, trying to outthink the Lord, those decisions will always fail. In the field outside Jerusalem, just half a chapter before, God says to Jeroboam, if you do what I command you and do what's right in my eyes, I'll be with you. But Jeroboam develops his own game plan, and it seems completely logical from a human standpoint, but it's absolutely wrong 
from a heavenly standpoint. That's because what makes sense to us, listen now, what usually makes sense to us is often not in line with heaven. That's why we really in our lives need three things that start with the letter S. One is to be strong students of the word. We've got to know what this book says so we know what God wants. Don't depend on a message by me or a message by a preacher you listen to on the radio or some kind of little study guide that doesn't dive you into the word. Become a student of the word. Because the word is what tells us what to do. Second S is we've got to be totally surrendered to his spirit. Because if we're not walking by the spirit, we can't expect to understand what God's doing. And the third thing is to be constantly seeking him so we know when he's speaking. Because just like those tornado sirens yesterday, when we are walking down the wrong path, God will send up warning sirens that will say, wait a second. Stop. You're not on the right path. There's the way of escape if it's temptation. You need to come to me, abide in my presence, talk to me, listen to me, study my word, get counsel, because you need to walk in the right path. Now, the enemy's constantly pushing against all of those things. And then he lies to us and says, look at all the things you have to offer. You are so much wiser than God. It sounds like Genesis 3. You're so much smarter than God. You know so much better than God. And you know what? Work really hard. Have a bunch of distractions. Do your own thing. Take care of what you want to do. You can serve God later. You know, once you get everything together, then you can serve me. Serve the Lord, excuse me. And it's all a lie. What does Jesus himself tell us in Matthew 6? He says, seek first what? Tell me. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then, after you seek the kingdom of God, all these things will be added. See, nothing's more important. We can't justify anything earthly in light of that verse. So let's finish. Jeroboam, Jeroboam thinks he's very smart. It makes all the sense in the world. You know what? Instead of letting the people go down to the other nation, let's keep the people close. Let's do what's convenient. It, let's, let's make it easier on them in order to keep the crowd. And you know what? We'll compromise the truth and we'll make things more accessible and we'll make them user-friendly and we'll give some substitutes for what God really says because we want to make sure everybody has what they need. By the way, that line of thinking is the underlying reason why Christianity is less effective and more well off course in 2015. I heard a pastor once describe it as Jeroboam religion. And you know what? That Jeroboam religion has leaked into our faith. If Jeroboam was worried based on the promise of God, he should have gone and sought the Lord and rest in his promise. But lack of faith listens to our faulty reasoning rather than seeking the Lord. And it may seem obvious and it may seem logical, but when we seek the Lord's approval, he will show us exactly what to do. And his plans are always perfect. David, when he was in the Valley of Rephaim in 2 Samuel 5, God says, go and win the battle. And David prays, are you sure? And God says, yes. And then the battle rises up again. And instead of David saying, well, I've got the first promise and I've already prayed about it, David goes back to the Lord and says, am I good again? 
We can never ask the Lord enough. Jeroboam doesn't ask the Lord at all. He knew what God said, but he didn't listen to it. And that is always dangerous thinking. So what's our reality? Will we take time to seek the Lord or will we rush into decisions? Will we be patient for God's clear answer and God's direction or will we assume that we know what's right and that we're not going to wait for God? Will we, will we trust that the Lord will provide or will we say, you know what, I got, I got, a, I got a better solution to this? Jeroboam even goes against counsel in verse 29, but nobody tells him the truth. You know, what, what strikes me about this is this is not an outlandish rebellion. It's a subtle but deep trap. We are always in trouble. We are always in danger when we say, I know what the Lord says, but I know better. I know what the Word says, but I don't have to follow that. I know what God's told me to do. I've sensed His leading, but, but I'm not going to do that. And instead of focusing on the Word and focusing on God's faithfulness, it becomes focused on circumstances that contradict what God tells us. And then it starts to live in fear and anxiety and doubt and discouragement and fatalism. But here's what the Lord says to us. This is our closing word that will take us out the door. It says, if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? If, if God is for us, and He says He is, it doesn't matter what tricks the enemy throws at us. It doesn't matter what people say to you. It doesn't matter what people say about you. It doesn't matter how desperate the circumstances are. Because God says, I'll help you. And Psalm 23 says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So do we believe that? Is, that? is that really what drives us and motivates us and helps us make decision? Do we say, he who began a good work in me will be, tell me, faithful to complete it. God's not going to take us to the point of saving us, redeeming us, changing us, filling us with His Spirit, and then say, you're on your own. Figure it out. Do your best. Use your own wisdom. My spirit is in you. My word is in your hands. You have the body to encourage you. And anytime you're confused, you come right to me and I will welcome you as my child. Somebody can say amen after this. And you can come boldly to me and ask me. And you know what? I'll answer you. God's not going to say to us, do your best. He's going to say, I will be faithful to complete it. And you will have perfect peace when your mind is fixed on me. Right before he left, Jesus said, when I return, am I going to find faith on the earth? Listen, I'm at the place now, and I don't say this around my kids often because I want them to enjoy their life, but I, I'm of the opinion the Lord's really, 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 really close. I mean, any day. When he comes and he looks at Paul Rhodes, when he comes and he looks at you, when he comes and looks at this church, is he going to say, there is faith? 
Or is he going to say, I don't know what they're doing. God is waiting for us to show an unwavering trust in him and to follow his commands. And when we do that, he will bless us.